You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have uh, Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We're rapidly nearing the end of this letter uh, and the end of the series as well. So we're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Uh, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that Bob just mentioned a little while ago, page 982 is where you can find that text. The uh, famous or maybe infamous uh, theologian Karl Barth, uh, he once quipped, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. There are no letters of the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. So we, we have these words, these letters in our Bible, in our sacred text, at least in part, because the churches of the first century had issues. Paul and James and John and Peter, each of them were responding to at least one significant problem. In the case of the, the church in Corinth, for example, it was many problems. Most of Paul's letter there that we know is 1 Corinthians, it's a series of his responses to the myriad of issues that was facing that, that church. The church in Philippi, on the other hand, we've come to see over these last weeks, is a relatively healthy church. And there is so much in this letter that Paul affirms, uh, so much that he is grateful for about the Philippians. But even Philippi has issues. And one of them, as we've seen, is unity. Unity. They, they have a need, as Paul was writing about at the beginning of chapter 2, to have the same mind, to have the same love, to live in full accord with one another. And in today's text, Paul's going to pick back up on that same thought. We've been hearing throughout this series, we've been hearing Paul call the Philippians to press on. And what we're going to see in today's text is that call is really a call to press on together together. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin there in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, my siblings, that means my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, or maybe your translation says gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we ask now that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to turn our hearts to you and to hear what you would speak. For as the psalmist says, surely you speak peace to your people. Give us ears now to hear it. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week, uh, I read a letter written by the elders of a church that a friend of mine used to pastor. Carl Bart was talking about how letters are birthed from problems. Uh, well, this church uh, is in a really hard place right now. But it was, it was difficult for me to even begin reading this letter because of how it was titled. The title of this letter was simply the, the pastor's name, my friend's name, and the word situation. So I'm trying to maintain a little bit of anonymity here and not tell you specifics about this, but it would be a little bit like if our elders wrote a letter to you one day and at the top of it, it just said, the Matt situation. It's impersonal. It's detached. It's, I mean, it's almost dehumanizing, right? In contrast, the Apostle Paul begins this section of his letter with some of the most sincere, affectionate language that we have in all of his writing. My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. He's going to bring some correction. But can you, doesn't that sound different than like the Euodia and Syntyche situation? It sounds a little different, doesn't it? He's going to bring some correction, but he makes it explicit here that that's an overflow of his love for them. Even as he's about to call them to press on together, he starts by saying, I'm also with you. I'm together with you. I'm for you. I'm in this with you. So what does pressing on together look like? Let's talk about four ways that Paul calls the Philippians to do that. Collaboratively, joyfully, prayerfully, thoughtfully. Collaboratively, joyfully, prayerfully, thoughtfully. So first, collaboratively. In, uh, in some churches around the, the uh, American Revolution, one of the official pastoral roles was called an exhorter, which is actually a different role and a different person from the preacher. So in a gathered worship service like this one, uh, the preacher would get up, would deliver a sermon, and then right after that, the exhorter, a different kind of member of the, the pastoral team, would stand up and apply it, sometimes in, in really direct ways, like Joe... That means you have to change the way you do business. And Sarah, that means your prayer life has to grow and change. So we're going to give that a shot this morning. Uh, I added to Pastor Bob's job description this week, exhorter. I'm going to preach a few minutes and he's going to get up here and we'll just see what happens. We'll see how he calls you out on different stuff. <laughs> can you, so can you, can you imagine though if we actually did something like that? And probably some of you are even like a little nervous right now knowing fully that we're not, we're not actually doing that, but you're still a little anxious in your, in your seat this morning. Paul calls some people out by name in this text. And that's not a common thing for Paul to do, except when he's in a, in a greeting, when he's saying, hello, everyone, and he names some people, or at the end of a letter. Then he shares some names. He does not often call people out by name. But here in verse 2, as you heard, he says, I entreat Euodia... And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Among the, the leaders there at the church in Philippi were some incredible women. Lydia, this businesswoman, as far as we know, was the first person in Philippi to put her faith 
in Jesus. And likely after she did that, that, that young church started to meet in, and gather in her home. Well, we learn here that Euodia and Syntyche are two more women who rose to a very prominent place in this church community. So this is not Paul calling out the delinquents. Euodia and Syntyche, as he says, are his co-laborers, his fellow workers. Their names are securely in the book of life. God's record of of people who belong to him, who are going to be in his kingdom. This is Paul pleading with high caliber, faithful women to agree, to have the same mind. We we don't know anything more about the, the source of tension between Euodia and Syntyche. But it was evidently substantial enough that it was threatening the the unity of the church there. And it was strained enough between the two of them that Paul enlists the help of a third party. And we don't know who that is. Paul simply calls this person true companion. But he says in this letter, help them. Help, Help them get to the place where they can agree in the Lord. So a few things for us to to take away from this. For one, conflict happens among solid, faithful Christians. Conflict happens among leaders in the church. We shouldn't be surprised by that. People who labor, pour themselves out for the advance of the gospel, and people who become leaders in churches, they tend to have some zeal. They tend to have some force to their personality. They tend to have some passion to their opinions. And that means that that pressing on together is going to be work. It's it's going to be a labor for for people to become and then to remain co-laborers. It doesn't just happen. It's a process that has to get worked out, and sometimes it even requires a third party to come alongside and to to help. We can have this overly idealized perception that, that Christians, when they become Christians, will just automatically get along. And that's just not true. I think most of you have been Christians for a period of time, long enough to know, that isn't actually how it works. There's there's an old saying that goes, to live above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's a different story. And it's kind of saying like, yeah, I'm really glad that other people are going to be in heaven with me. I I just would rather not deal with them now. As long as I don't have to cross paths with them or interact with them in this life, great. I hope they're I hope they're there someday. To to find real agreement with real people is hard. But as Paul is saying here, it's essential, at least in core foundational things. People who are going to labor together for the sake of the gospel, they have got to get to a place of agreement. They've got to have the same mind as they do that. And you, you pick up from what Paul is saying here, it's worth it to fight to get there. One of the things, maybe that was even on Paul's mind as he was writing these, these words. One of the things in Paul's past was the time that, that he and Barnabas, a dear friend of his, went separate ways. They got into a strong disagreement about whether or not to take this other man named John Mark with them on one of their missionary journeys. And the, the conflict was so intense that they split up over that for a period of time. Years later, there was some reconciliation, but I imagine Paul carried some regret about that for the rest of his life. I mean, he certainly did not start prescribing that and say like, hey, you know what? If things get tough, just part ways for a while. It'll be good later. He never got there. Our aim as Christians is to be those who really labor together side by side, who are collaborative, who become fellow workers for the sake of the gospel, who press on together. 
So when you find yourself in conflict with another Christian, let this be a call to you as well. Fight for unity. Fight to get to that place where you can agree in the Lord and ask for help to get there. It's not a failure. You're not a failure if you struggle to get there on your own. Ask for a third party to step in. Short of sinning, do everything you possibly can to remain side by side, pressing on together. Second, second, we do this joyfully, not just collaboratively, but joyfully. Paul here in chapter four, starting to wind down his letter. And so he starts to reiterate some of the themes that he's been talking about throughout. So first, as we just heard, he's talking about unity, which he's talked about before. And now he talks about joy. We've heard Paul talk a lot so far in this letter about his own joy, about his own rejoicing. Well, now he calls the Philippians to do the same. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Both in, in this cultural moment that you and I live in and throughout the centuries, there have always been some people who function as though emotions are ultimate. Emotions are ultimate. That we are subject to our emotions and whatever we're feeling in a given moment. Here, Paul is commanding joy. He's saying, rejoice. And he's saying, do that always. He's not really giving us a loophole or, or a way out. And that must mean that we have more control over our emotions than some people would be inclined to think. Now, on the other hand, in this cultural moment and throughout history, There have always been some people who do recognize that emotions are not ultimate, that that we have a need to and actually some ability to bring our emotions under the control of our will, of our volition. But what emotions do people like that tend to be known for? Not joy. Not joy. People like that tend to be stoic. They tend to be really disciplined. They bring their emotions under control and they tend to be calloused and stoic or unfeeling or flat. And over and against both of these approaches, Paul is saying, rejoice always. Direct your emotions, but direct them into joy. The only way that Paul could command rejoicing always is if joy is something deeper than happiness. And if rejoicing is rooted in something deeper than circumstances. So remember who's talking and where he's talking from. This is Paul in prison, in chains. He isn't sitting with his steaming cup of coffee and his open Bible and the sunlight streaming in. There's no handmade Etsy sign that says, choose joy on the wall behind him. He's in chains. You can be discouraged and rejoice. You can be sad and rejoice. You can be exhausted and weary and utterly spent trying to do the right things and not being sure if it's making any difference whatsoever and rejoice. Why? Because as Paul continues, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And that phrase there in verse five is communicating both proximity and imminence. So so proximity that, that Jesus is actually with you right now. He's at hand. And imminence, he's coming soon. We got to taste that a little bit last week at the end of chapter three. Jesus is the prize at the finish line at the end of this race that we're running. And he is coming again from heaven. But even so, he's with us now. We don't have to wait till that day to have Jesus with us. He's near now. 
It is only possible to rejoice always if Jesus is always at hand. That's what Paul's saying here. Because not a moment of your life is wasted according to Jesus by his accounting of things. And whether there's in any given moment a smile on your face or a tear in your eye, Jesus is both there with you and coming again soon, bringing to completion the good work he's begun. Now here's the together part of this. We have to help each other rejoice. If we have any hope of actually doing what Paul says here and rejoicing always, we have to help each other do that. Because there are some days where our perception of Jesus and our perception of his work is just so faint and blurry, it's just not even on the radar for us to to rejoice. And so Paul says here, right after he says rejoice always, let your reasonableness be known to all. That word could also be translated softness or gentleness. And we see here from putting these things together that as Christians, ours is a gentle rejoicing. It's a gentle rejoicing. It it seeks to lift other people gently into our joy, not to flatten them. You think about this kind of rejoicing more as like a blimp or a balloon, not a bulldozer. And maybe you can reflect on times in your own life. Have you ever been bulldozed by somebody else's joy? By somebody else's rejoicing? It was maybe well-meaning. It was maybe even trying to seek to follow what Paul was calling Christians to here and rejoicing always. But its effect was to steamroll right over you. It felt like they were trying to force happiness and force you to be happy in a moment that just didn't call for happiness. Christians are people who are both rejoicing always, and reasonable. Both of those things at the same time. So in all circumstances, we are fighting for joy. We're directing our emotions to joy, but in a way that fully acknowledges the brokenness, the real brokenness of things in this life. One more practical way that I've seen this play out in my own life has been when many hard and heavy things come all at once which seems to be the way they always come. It's like there's never just one hard thing going on in your life. When, you, when one hard thing happens, it seems like there's 10 all of a sudden. I've found that there's something really counterintuitive to how I experience that. As I absorb the first one, whether it's directly from me or just someone that I'm close to, as I absorb the sorrow and pain of that first hard thing, it takes me low, sorrowful. The second hard thing comes and it, it really starts to overwhelm me starts to drive me to a place of despair. And I start to say things like you might read in the Psalms, like, what are you doing, God? Where are you in this? Why is this happening? But then a a third thing or a fourth or a fifth thing happens and somewhere in there, something tips. Because though, though it should have been obvious to me the whole time, it now becomes inescapable and painfully obvious how dependent I really am. And how little control I actually have over any of these things to make them turn out the way that I would want to. And it's actually in that moment that my perspective begins to be recalibrated. Because if it tips in there somewhere, all of a sudden I recognize how dependent I am. Well, who am I dependent upon? And, and, and where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to run to in that moment? I'm going I'm to run to Jesus. And if I can get there, I can maybe remember, well, what is Jesus doing right now? He's making all things new. He's infinitely more grieved by sin and all of its effects. 
And he's infinitely more committed to actually doing something about that. So in the midst of some of the most discouraging, wearying moments of our lives, we're still invited to rejoice in this. In this. That that Satan's rage is the rage of a defeated foe. That there is a day coming where every tear will be wiped away from every eye. Where sin and sorrow and death will be no more. But I hope you're hearing this morning, that kind of rejoicing is not superficial. It's not just slapping a grin on your face and whistling zippity-doo-dah and pretending things are okay all the time. It has to enter into the hard and sorrowful things and fight for a way to rejoice in the midst of that. That's the kind of joy that can actually lift up other people gently, reasonably, rather than bulldoze them. It's that kind of joy that will help us rejoice together. So collaboratively, joyfully. Third, pressing on together happens prayerfully. Prayerfully. If you're wired like I am, when you hear Paul say something like press on, it immediately translates into a flurry of activity, stuff to do, being productive. What's the stuff that I can do for Jesus? What's the stuff that I can do for his kingdom? And certainly, Paul has a lot of that kind of thing in mind in this letter. He's written much of that. We've read some of it. But perhaps the most important way we press on is in prayer. As I mentioned a moment ago, rejoicing often comes only when we're reminded of how dependent we are and who we're dependent upon. Well, that realization, that dependence drives us to be people of prayer. When we finally reach the the realization that I'm limited, More effort and exertion for me isn't going to actually solve this thing. Then we can actually start to plead with God from a place of real dependence, which is what prayer is. It's it's active dependence upon God. Paul here commands rejoicing, as we've seen. He also commands Christians not to be anxious. How does that go over in a cultural moment, in a society where anxiety is a pandemic, an epidemic to a, on a proportion that the COVID just never touched. And how, does that, how does that command go over in this moment? But long before this letter, it's exactly what Jesus told his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. So again, this has to transcend circumstances. This can't be a, a superficial kind of command. For many people, And I'm sure you know at least one well, if not a dozen well. For many people, anxiety is a physiological and or emotional condition that they suffer from. We all know people. or We ourselves are the people who suffer, who experience that kind of anxiety. And I'm really grateful for doctors and I'm grateful for medication. I'm grateful for counselors and how the grace of God can show up in powerful ways through all of those means. But where some people might be inclined to ignore the physiological or the emotional aspects of anxiety, other people start to think that all anxiety is physiological or emotional. And what Paul is saying here is some of it's spiritual. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. We have to be comprehensive and holistic about this. And though God is not limited to this, one of his prescribed means to relieve our anxiety is what? Prayer. Prayer. Don't be anxious, but pray, Paul says. Tell God and ask God and thank God 
And in a mysterious, miraculous kind of way, he will often respond with peace. There's a kind of peace that Paul's writing about here that surpasses understanding when it, when it just doesn't make sense circumstantially. Just like joy for me and maybe for you as well can come counterintuitively when one more heavy thing is dropped upon you and it just recalibrates your perspective. Peace often comes not when our circumstances change, but when our posture does. Not when our circumstances change, but when our approach to dealing with those circumstances changes. And if you're, a, if you're a doer, if you're someone like me who responds to pressure by doing more, real relief to your anxiety will never come by completing your to-do list. It's just not there. First of all, you're never going to complete your to-do list. You're always going to add two things for every one thing you complete. But you're not going to find relief from your anxiety there. You might find relief, though, when you stop doing and you start actually pleading with and asking God, when you actually do recognize the limits of your own strength and through prayer begin entrusting yourself to his strength instead. The imagery that Paul uses here is really powerful. It says God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And you remember that Paul in this moment is, always has a Roman guard three feet from him. He's in, he's in prison. He's got a Roman guard next to him all the time. And Philippi is this Roman colony where there's always a garrison of Roman soldiers present. He's saying that's what God's peace can be like. Always there, always present, always on duty. I want to ask you to consider for yourself this morning, do I I respond to anxiety with prayer? When I experience anxiety in my life, we should all ask ourselves, do I respond with prayer? Again, not at all diminishing or dismissing the physiological, the emotional aspects of anxiety. But are you availing yourself of the means that God has so graciously offered? Are you availing yourself of him? He's the kind of God that says to you, tell me, bring those requests, bring those supplications, bring that stuff to me. Are we availing ourselves of him? And then fourth and finally in this text, pressing on together happens thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. The Christian life is supposed to be a thoughtful life, a contemplative life. And so pressing on to follow Jesus will certainly involve our bodies. There's physical things for us to do, but it also involves our minds. And this is especially important for God's people as we're trying to, we're trying to press on together in the midst of a world, in the midst of societies that often oppose Jesus and oppose his people and oppose his kingdom. So I really appreciate what Paul writes here and how a a scholar named Gordon Fee talks about this and summarizes it. Gordon Fee says this, he says, the most common response, he's talking about Christians here, the most common Christian response to culture is rejection. But this text suggests a better way, that one approach the marketplace the arts, the media, the university, looking for what is true and uplifting and admirable, but that, but, that one to, uh, but that one do so with a discriminating eye and ear. So if you think about it, when we talk about how we're going to interact together as Christians in a society that often opposes Jesus, a much easier approach to our lives would just be to reject everything that's not overtly Christian. 
So if it's not played on Caleb, if it's not published by a Christian publishing company or a Christian author, if it's not on VidAngel, just reject it. Don't, don't deal with any of that stuff. That's easier. And some people, some Christians do just that. In certain circles and in certain times and places, Christians have been known for being very unthoughtful people, even anti-intellectual people. Like, we don't really need our mind that much. Just do the stuff. Let, let, the, heathens, let the heathens deal with the thought life. That's not our thing. And Paul is saying here, no, no, don't do that. Embrace the good wherever you can find it. Because people are created in the image of God and because he has written eternity into their hearts, you will always be able to look around this world and find places and find things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. You'll always be able to find that. Look for them. Contemplate them. Use your mind and engage with this world, with the place that he has put you, that God has put you, with the people that he's put you among. Paul is just saying in the same breath, as you do that, be discriminating. Be discriminating. You don't have to reject all movies and all music, but you do need to be selective. You do need to be intentional in what you consume and what you think about and dwell on. You don't have to reject social media as long as it's true, as long as it's honorable, as long as it's lovely. Maybe you do have to reject social media. You might, there might not be a loophole for that one. But, but at least you got a grid now to run it through, to run it through. And Paul is saying, no, employ, don't just, it's too easy and it's condemning other people to stay in the place that they are far from Christ. Don't, don't just reject everything. Employ your mind. Employ your mind and think about excellent and praiseworthy things. But then he continues, verse 9, practice these things. Don't just think about them. Actually put them into practice. One commentator put it this way. Noble thoughts are of little value unless they be translated to deeds. Practice outshines priority. Living supersedes learning. And notice here, as Paul concludes this part of his text, there's a conditional promise. Think about these things. Practice these things. And what? And the God of peace will be with you. Now, is Paul saying here that, that we can earn or merit the presence of God by our actions, by our practices? No, he, he's been writing all throughout this letter that Jesus has already made us his own. And when we come to trust in Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, we are united with him. Positionally, from that moment, we are in Christ. We are with Christ and nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can take us out of his hand. But experientially, experientially, our thoughts and our practices make a huge difference. Our union with Jesus is secure. It's secure. We were even praying this way together in our prayer of confession. But our communion with him, our experience of that union has conditional elements to it. So you can think about it like this. God's nearness never changes, but our sense of his nearness does. God's nearness never changes. He's always near to us. He is never far from any one of us. But our sense of his nearness changes. It's like how our rejoicing doesn't change our circumstances. It just is locating our circumstances in the bigger story of God. 
or how our prayers don't change God's character. They just avail ourselves of him and his character. Well, God is always near to us, always near to us, but our thoughtfulness, what we think about, and then our practice of excellent and praiseworthy things, that will affect in any given moment our sense of his his nearness. And at the end of the day, church, here's the thing. We are not just desperate for the peace of God, like Paul writes about in verse 7. We are desperate for the God of peace, which is what he says in verse 9. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace. And in Jesus, the God of peace is with us. Praise be to him. Jesus is our peace. And he has entered into this divided, joyless, anxious, unreasonable, unpraiseworthy world to redeem us and to make all things new. Therefore, because that's who Jesus is and because he's near to us, collaboratively, joyfully, prayerfully, thoughtfully, let us press on together. Let us press on together. Even this morning, this Palm Sunday, remember the Lord, King Jesus, the Lord is at hand. He is both near and he's coming soon. And so today, friends, may you know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. May it guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But even more than that, Even more than that, may you know the God of peace. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. And we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard. And even as Paul is talking about so many directives, so many hard things, we confess the ways that we fall short of all of this. And if in our minds right now, we're just really aware of broken relationships that are not united, that are not collaborative, if we're, if we're recognizing that we're not very joyful right now and it feels like we're being bulldozed by Paul or by me to have to rejoice in the midst of hard things, or if we're feeling anxious and it feels too simplistic to just say pray about it, or if we've had a terrible thought life this week, if our thought life's been anything but excellent or praiseworthy, I pray that this morning, every single person in this room would hear not the condemnation of Jesus, but the love and forgiveness and grace of Jesus. That that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We want your conviction, Father, in all of these things, but we want to see how and help us to see even now that you have invited us to live lives that are united and joyful and prayerful and thoughtful. So I pray you'd protect all the people in this room, all the people listening this morning, protect them from lies that Satan would tell them, condemnation he would heap upon them. As we prepare to come to this table, would you just invite us again into the grace you hold out to us? Would you hold before us the finished work of Jesus? Would we feast upon it even again this morning? And would it make us faithful followers of you, Jesus? Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.